We will look at that this morning. I want to back up and read the text we covered last week as well. Uh, these, this is part of a continuing argument or discussion about righteousness. And so this verse, these verses today connect with those that we looked at last week. So it was just too much for one sermon and would have been a two-hour sermon if I'd have preached all of it and Let's read from verse 30. In response to what we've seen in chapter 9 and God's sovereign grace in saving a remnant of the Jews and bringing the Gentiles into that salvation, we say in verse 30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Watch all the times righteousness is mentioned as I read through. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, notice it's Christ, will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone. Who believes? Thus far, God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. Your spirit must illuminate and apply your word to lost and saved hearts. Lord, bring the lost to faith. Bring the saved to growth. Help me to preach your word in the power of the spirit. Help us to hear it as the very word of God in the power of the spirit, seeking to understand And have it change us. So bless the word as it goes forth. Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. Lift high your son, Lord, and draw all kinds of people to yourself. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Ignorance is bliss. What does that mean? Maybe some thought of that by being ignorant, we can be free from worry. But actually, see, the opposite is true. It is truth embraced that sets one free. Ignorant bliss is fantasy life. It's more true to say that the lack of knowledge or slash ignorance is the root cause of much of the misery In our lives. That's why we have to be filled more and more and more with the word. So that that ignorance is replaced by knowledge and truth. Hosea 
In Hosea 4, 6 says, God says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And there he's getting on to the priests for their failure to teach so that the people would know the truth. But catch that. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That lack of knowledge can be self-imposed if we don't take in the knowledge. Read the word. Diligent for that. And sometimes people are at the mercy of what they're being taught if they don't have the scriptures. But today we're going to talk about ignorance. And we're going to see the worst form of ignorance. Which is ignorance of the righteousness of God. And we'll talk about what that means. And we've already seen this language way back in chapter 3. And we'll talk about that as well. But look at the connections. I told you this was all a connected text. Look at the connections between uh, the verse we'll look at, verses we'll look at today, chapter 10, 1 to 4, and the ones we looked at last time. Israel's zeal for God in verse 2 was in verse 31 of chapter 9 expressed by those who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. Israel's attempt to establish their own righteousness in verse 3. You see that in in 9.32, they were pursuing righteousness as if it were by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone in 32 and 33, which was Christ refusing, in in chapter 10, verse 3, refusing to submit themselves to God's righteousness. So what we want to seek to do today is eliminate ignorance of God's righteousness. And hopefully God applies that so to our heart that we embrace that by faith and see if we're children of God that we are righteous in Christ and because of Christ. And if we're not children of God that we can be righteous but not by our works, only by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gift. I titled this Ignorant Zeal. That's that's really... The center, the heart of this text is right there in verse 2. And talking about ignorant zeal. But the main takeaway for you as we look at what Paul is teaching the Romans and how he's talking about the Jews' failure and we saw the Gentile success because of grace in verse 30 of chapter 9. Main point of application continues. Trust in nothing other than Christ alone for right standing with God. Bazillions, that's a southern word of people are trusting in their own works in some form of another. We want to not do that, but trust in rest in Christ. So trust in nothing other than Christ alone for right standing with God. We're going to do this quickly, but let's look first at Paul's prayer. And I brought this out in the prayer meeting the other night as well. But notice these bookends that we have. In the first part of chapter 1, you have Paul's burden for Israel and his his unceasing anguish and grief because they have, for the most part, rejected their Messiah. He wants them to be coming to faith in Jesus, and most of them are not. So he has a grief and a burden for them. And then here in 10.1, we see his heart's desire and continual prayer is for their salvation. Now, between that sandwich or those two bookends is that great section we've just studied through on God's sovereign election. 
unconditional election. God has chosen a remnant of the Jews and, and uh, uh, people among the Gentiles to be one body, one church, one people in Christ. So evidently, God's sovereignty didn't cause Paul not to pray or witness. It didn't quench his burden for the lost. No, it fueled it. His confidence that this word would go forth and accomplish all of its purpose. And he says here in verse 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Sovereignty fuels obedience. Sovereignty fuels faithfulness. Sovereignty should fuel a burden for the lost and a witness to the lost and a prayer for the lost. And if it doesn't, we're sinning with our knowledge of the sovereignty of God. If sovereignty, if my knowledge of God's sovereignty causes me to just sit back and say, oh, well, it's all going to be taken care of. I have nothing to do. Then I am ignoring God's commands to me. And I'm sinning with his sovereignty. But see, the redeemed heart grieves over the lost and wants the lost to come to Christ and prays for the lost to come to Christ and doesn't uh, inordinately worry about how they're praying and whether they're praying it just right. Some of us are too rationalistic in our thoughts. And well, if God's going to save them, he's going to save them. And I mean, my prayer isn't going to make any difference when God's word says the the faithful prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Get out of your own head and back in the word of God and embrace the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and seek to joyfully be who he's called you to be and trust him to empower you to do that. But you see exampled in Paul here a burden. And a continual prayer life fueled by that burden. That he has a desire and prayer to God for the lost. See, sovereignty fueled his evangelistic zeal and his prayer for the lost. It didn't quench it. And prayer is one of the means through which God accomplishes the salvation of his people. So, have you a burden for the lost? Have you matured out of that? That's not maturity, by the way. Do we need to pray back into that so that we have a burden for the lost? Are you actually praying for people to come to Christ? Individual people, people that you know that don't know Christ. And then seeking to witness to them. Well, see, Paul examples that for us. An earnest and a passionate and a continual prayer life. And I said this before, but if you go through and read all of the people Paul continually prayed for and all of the churches he continually prayed for, it wasn't God bless the missionaries kind of prayer. That general kind. It was specific prayer. But it's just, this is a diagnostic question this morning. Child of God. Do you have a burden for the lost and are you praying for the lost? Does it grieve you that those around you that you know that are outside of Christ are lost? I know the younger crowd, because they've been the victim of some postmodern education these days, have a problem saying that anybody is wrong, right? But some people are wrong and some people are right. And the resurrection proves Christ is right. And so we need to be Seeking to lovingly, gently, but faithfully help our acquaintances see that they're lost and need a Savior. And first and foremost, we do that through prayer and then through witness. 
But Paul's burden for the lost was not quenched. And we see my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So we see Paul's persistent prayer. Now let's look at Israel's ignorant zeal. It's not mean to say somebody's ignorant. It's not an insult necessarily unless they're willingly ignorant and refusing to do anything about that. It just means that there's some things they don't know. So being as how you don't know everything, we can all sort of look at ourselves and say we're ignorant about some things. But the Jews were ignorant about something that was very important, that was revealed in Scripture, that they didn't see. They didn't see their need for this kind of righteousness, and therefore they didn't look to Christ and see the Messiah as the one who would provide that righteousness. Look at what it says in verse 2. We look at Israel's ignorant zeal. It says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. What is it to be zealous? Just to kind of be ho-hum about something? Oh, well, whatever. No, to be zealous is to show great energy and enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. It's to be a passionate pursuit. If I'm zealous for something, I'm passionately pursuing it. You may have at one time passionately pursued your current spouse. And that wasn't a ho-hum pursuit, I'm guessing, if it was successful. They are zealous. Paul says, I, I, I bear witness. He, he, remember, he come out of this context. Saul of Tarsus. And we'll talk about that a little bit. But he bears them witness. He's giving testimony for the fact that they are zealous. He knows his brethren well. He's walked with them very uh, a long time. He remembers his own past and how zealous he was. They have and he had a strong zeal for the Torah and for the true God of Israel. And Paul thought he was serving God and being faithful to God and faithful to his scriptures when he was seeking to stamp out this new sect called Christianity, this new sect called the way at that point. Christians, they were they were following a false teacher and they were corrupting the faith. And his goal was to stamp them out because he was zealous for God. So he knows their zeal, but he also knows something is missing. They are zealous. Now watch this. They are zealous. They have a zeal for God, verse 2, but not according to knowledge. What do you mean, Paul? Just like you, many, many Jews study all day long. They are filled with the truths of what we would call the Old Testament. They have a lot of knowledge. Paul, I mean, look at Hebrews, which is Paul's theology through the pen of Luke. You're welcome. That's my conviction, right? He knew full well the Torah. He knew full well the prophets and the Psalms. He knew the Scriptures. He had a lot of knowledge. But he didn't know this. He was ignorant about the righteousness of God. Not that God required righteousness, 
He was fully aware of that. But he was ignorant. And the Jews, Paul says, not according to knowledge. Now look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Stop. There's their ignorance. Their zeal is not directed by a full knowledge of the righteousness of God. There's something missing that is causing them to live out a misdirected zeal. There's a, there's a hole in their knowledge that causes them to fight against the gospel. Just like differently, but there was a hole in my knowledge at one point. It caused me to fight against the gospel. There was ignorance that needed to be dealt with. There was untruth that needed to be replaced by truth. Ronald Reagan once famously said, it's not that my opponents are ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. Jews knew a lot at this point that wasn't so. They didn't understand the righteousness of God. So they fought against the gospel like Paul before Christ. He's the preeminent example there. So the first defect that we see that Paul is pointing out is that they're ignorant. Now, again, that doesn't mean stupid. That just means there's some stuff that needs to be taught and learned. There's a hole in their knowledge regarding the righteousness of God. So, okay, then that would cause us to ask the question. They they knew the law. They knew all that was revealed in the Old Covenant. They knew that God required righteousness. That God required the, His law to be kept. And that that was righteous thing to do so. So, where's the hole in their knowledge? Well, their hole in their knowledge is when it comes to understanding what Paul means here. When he says... They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. There's a lot of uses uh, for the genitive there, and you don't need to remember that. But one of which you could say, the righteousness that comes from God. You see that there. Verse 3. The righteousness of God is a righteousness that comes from God. It's a righteousness given to or credited to or imputed to believers through faith. The free gift of righteousness is what they're not getting. They are under the impression, we saw it up in 930 to 33, that they misunderstood. They pursued the law as if it would lead to righteousness. They didn't seek to attain righteousness by faith, but they pursued it as if it were based on works. They, they thought because they were commanded to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that they were able to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does God ever command you things you cannot do in and of yourself? Of course He does. He told Old Testament Israel, circumcise your heart. It's like me looking at you and saying, okay, you've got some bad valves, Mike. Go out to your shop and reach in there and fix that. Is that how you did that? No, somebody else had to reach in there and fix that, right? They're missing an important... See, they missed the first use of the law. The first use of the law is a, is a portrayal of the perfect righteousness of God and the perfect righteousness that He requires. So they missed the mirror. That mirror is supposed to show us, oh, like Isaiah, woe is me. 
I fall short. I don't attain to this glory God has called me to, to glorify Him by full obedience to His law. They didn't understand that nobody had kept the law in thought, word, and deed. See, true righteousness is righteousness from the inside out. You can't press it from the outside in. That's the mistake legalism tries to do. Right? Mistake they were making. True righteousness first begins with a change of heart that begins to flower in a joyful, loving obedience to God. See, the Jews were ignorant of the righteousness that is given through faith. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And they had to be told because they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. What is the righteousness of God? Well, it's the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the very embodiment of true righteousness. That was Him. He is the righteousness of God. And the righteousness from God is the perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ that is credited to, imputed to, given to the believer. Let's remember, let's just read through chapter 3. We've already talked about this, but we'll just get a refresher as we read through this short portion of chapter 3. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Now watch, we're going to talk about the righteousness of God here. And he's going to tell us what he's talking about here. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Has come to be seen. Has been made visible. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All of that old covenant pointed to this coming of righteousness in this coming of the righteous one. Watch what it says. So, Old Testament is bearing witness to it. Verse 22, he's telling us what he means. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God requires, this perfect righteousness in thought, word, and deed that we must have if we are to be reconciled to Him, it comes from Him to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all to believe. It says, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile, all are lost. And look, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward to be a propitiation, meaning he paid the penalty, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now watch this. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That kind of righteousness, the righteousness that comes, that is not by the law, but is by faith that comes from God, that is credited to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what they were ignorant of. See, if you remember what we're talking about here, and we saw it at the end of that Romans text is justification. What does that mean? It means God declaring us righteous in his courtroom. The judgment already taking place. How can I be declared righteous by a holy God knowing that I am a sinner who deserves His wrath? And Paul's saying it's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Justification is an act of God whereby He pardons all our sin and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So pardon and righteousness given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. We come to God sinners deserving wrath and He works in us through the gospel to bring us new life so that we're born again so that we turn, repent, and trust in Jesus. And from the moment of faith in Jesus, and it's not really moments, but anyway, way to talk. We are united to Christ, hidden in Him, pardoned for all sin, clothed in His righteousness. Therefore, it is just for God to look at us and say, righteous, accepted, children of the living God. See, this is what the Jews were missing. They were seeing the law and they had a zeal for the law and they thought they could keep the law and they're pressing in to keep the law and they're seeking to attain their own righteousness. And, and men like Isaiah are standing up and saying, Oh, wait, stop. All our righteous attempts are filthy rags. Because none of us keep the law and thought word indeed. But see, they couldn't see that. The Spirit has to open their minds. They've been blinded. They have been hardened, which they deserved. They had a zeal. They were zealous and passionate, but not in the right direction because they missed the key, the righteousness of God. So their second defect is that they sought to establish their own righteousness. They did not pursue it by faith, 932, but as if it were based on works. 31, they pursued a law that would lead to righteousness and they did not succeed. And you won't succeed. None of us can succeed. Because in order to succeed from cradle to grave, we have to keep God's law in thought, word, and deed. And none of us have done that. So their, their defect is they're seeking to keep the law in order to be righteous. They're bringing, they're seeking to offer God something that will make Him accept them. We sing, this, listen, this, I'm going to summarize and then I'll quote a hymn. There's only two religions on the planet. And you say, now wait a minute, I can name a bunch of them. Yes, but they all fall under two different genus. There's two categories. Something in my hands I bring, and nothing in my hands I bring. And that's it. There's man trying to make himself right, and God making right through faith. But there are only two religions. Biblical Christianity and everything else. Because only in biblical Christianity is righteous given to you as a gift, acceptance given to you as a gift based on another, which is Christ, who has lived, died, and been raised for us. See, Rock of Ages, right? We sing it. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. So those two religions, nothing in my hands I bring and something in my hands I bring. Listen, either Christ makes us acceptable to God or we make ourselves acceptable to God. And the fool's errand is trying to make myself acceptable to God. Because it is not true. A holy and righteous God cannot, cannot accept 
defiled works. And everything we do outside of Christ is polluted to some extent with sin. With selfishness, self-investment, a lack of focus on the glory of God, not done out of love, not done according... I mean, you go on down the line. When you really examine your attempts to keep His law, you will see that all of your righteousness is filthy rags. And therefore, God cannot accept sin to make a person right. He just can't. Holiness must judge sin. God doesn't grade on the curve. You will either be a perfectly righteous person. Stop. None of us are. In and of ourselves. Or you will hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and find it as a free gift. There are many apostate forms of Christianity that are just nothing other than something in my hands I bring. There are many other religions that are nothing other than something in my hands I bring. If you are attempting to be justified by works, your works, something in my hands I bring. Maybe you even see grace enabling you to do these works so that you will then be justified on the basis of those works. Something in my hands I bring. If you are counting on your own attempts to be righteous, on your own works, even if you are very, very zealous. You hear some people say sometimes, well, what matters is whether or not you're sincere. No, that's not true. I can give you a glass of cyanide and you tell you it's water and you can really believe it's water and drink it. And guess what? Be ready. Absent from the body, you're going to be standing before the Lord. You can be sincerely wrong. And the Jews were sincerely wrong. They were zealous. They were, they, they, they were convinced that their way was right, like Paul, until grace interrupted his life. See, ignorant zeal is being ignorant of the righteousness of God being given to you and seeking to establish your own righteousness. And if you're counting on your own works, on your own being good enough, on your own doing enough of the right thing, that will land you in hell. And I love you enough to tell you that. Christ didn't have to come if we could save ourselves. But He did. Because we can't. See, Christ came and didn't just pop on the cross either. He was born in a humble estate. He lived under His own law. Why? So that He could fulfill all righteousness. He said to to John the Baptist when he was being baptized, John's like, you don't need to be baptized. And that was true. But Jesus, representing His people, said it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. He came to live under His own law and fulfill that own law to provide a perfect righteousness for His people. And then He went to the cross and died and paid the penalty for our sins. Christ died for our sins. See, physical torture was horrible, but the spiritual wrath that was poured out on Him. And for you to understand the depths of what He paid for you, you'd have to spend eternity in hell. He didn't want you to do that. Right? So he took, he became the atonement for our sins. He drank the cup of God's wrath dry on that cross and said, It is finished. Paid in full. Christ died for our sins. 
God loved the world in this way that God gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, that's hell, but have everlasting life. Are you looking to Christ? Have you received the free gift? It's not, see, it's not, God's not waiting on you to clean up your act, to make yourself better, to make yourself acceptable. What He wants you to do is look to Christ. To repent of looking to self in all other directions. To have that, that 180 shift of heart that leads to a shift in the life. But that change in the direction of your soul. So now you turn to God. And in grief and hatred of your sin, you repent and turn to Him and receive Christ as your Savior. See, the beautiful news of the gospel. We looked at this last week. in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Our sin was imputed to Christ and He paid the penalty on the cross. And His righteousness, therefore, is imputed to us. And we are accepted as God's children. Double imputation. Gospel truth. The great exchange. However you want to say that. But see, Paul knows, he said, they're zealous, but they're zealously wrong. They're seeking to uh, perform and have their righteousness be based on their performance. I've been there. I know what they're doing. And I can say to them, and I do say to them often, no, you've got to look to Christ, the Messiah, Paul would say. Because you can't fix it by what you do. Hope not in your works. But humbly look to God's grace. The the tax collector and the Pharisee, right? But the tax collector was the one who said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God was. Have you cried out for mercy? Have you looked to Christ? Are you trusting in Him alone? Then you know, or at least now you know, that you've been given the righteousness that God requires as a free gift because you have been given Christ. Christ indwells you. And is your Savior. So he bore them witness that they had a zeal, but it was an ignorant zeal because, verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they were seeking to establish their own and therefore they weren't submitting to God's righteousness. And that's exactly where Paul was before his conversion. Look, he he talks about that in Philippians. I have a, a little bit to read from Philippians for you. But it's Philippians 3, 2 to 9. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision. The true circumcision. Romans 2, we've talked about that. God's true children who have circumcised hearts. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul's talking... Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, he gives his pedigree now. Circumcised on the eighth day. Exactly the right time. Of the people of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, the most strict part, sect of the people. As to zeal, see, he was ignorantly zealous. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, that external form that he was pursuing and thought he was modeling. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then Christ. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's a stronger word than rubbish. I'll just say dung and move on. In order. Why, Paul? Why did you forsake seeking your own righteousness? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Now watch his last qualifying statement. It goes right along with our text. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that's the false kind, right? Because we can't attain it. That's what he's talking about. But, contrast, strong. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. There is a righteousness that comes from God to the child of God. When the child of God, by the work of God's grace, places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are both cleansed from our sin and clothed in His righteousness and accepted as His child. Paul's burden, Paul's desire, Paul's prayer is that his Jewish brethren would come to the end of themselves and see that they fall short of the glory required in the law, which we've seen in chapter 3 already, and look up to God in Christ and find and receive this free gift of right standing or righteousness with God. You want to be made right with God? Look to Christ. Well, I want to do something else. Well, there's nothing else for you to do. Turn from unbelief to faith. Turn from running from Him to receiving Him. Receive Him as, what must I do to be saved? Well, do your best. Do the best you can and God will do the rest. No, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul told the Philippian jailer, and you will be saved. Why? Because Jesus is our righteousness. And that's where we go in verse 4. The law is perfect culmination. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law. Put a comma right there if you want to. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Well, you could make a mistake about what that means if you're not careful. And whenever you're studying the Bible, read more than one good translation. But that word there for end is telos. Telos. The end for which it was given. The goal of the law. This little word is thrown to the front of the verse for emphasis in the Greek. Christ is the end or goal of the law. Christ is the goal or purpose of the law. And it all points to Him and He has fulfilled it all. Matthew 5.17 Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's not limited to rightly teaching them. He performed them. He attained a righteousness that would be gifted to His people. Christ is what it's all about. 
primarily why it was given. Yes, that we might become to an end of ourselves, but the purpose of our coming to an end of ourselves is that we might look to Christ. Christ came to fulfill them, and He fulfilled them. And now, right standing is available as a free gift through faith in Him. Here's a couple of other translations. I think we have slides for these that bring out what, what, what is the, the right sort of translation of this verse. First, the Net Bible in Romans 10.4. You'll see the punctuation there after the law. That's why I said that, the comma. For Christ is the end of the law. Stop. With the result that there is righteousness for everyone who believes. See, the law never was a way for us to make our own way. Christ is not the end of the law for righteousness. It's as if ever there was a time when the law was for righteousness. It never was. It never was a ladder that we could climb to heaven. First and foremost, it was to be a mirror to show us that we fall short. And that we need a Savior. Christ is the end of the law, comma, with the result that there is righteousness for everyone who believes. I would encourage you to use the Net Bible. You can get it online. Um, and there's a lot of good notes. And if you're into that kind of thing, there's a lot of good translation notes um, in the Bible to help you dig into the original language. And then the NIV. The NIV has strengths. It has weaknesses, but it has strengths, just like every other translation. It says this, Christ... I like this. Moo comes out here. I think this is right. Christ is the culmination of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So if you will be righteous, how will you be righteous? Through faith. Faith alone. Justification by faith alone. It's not enough to say we're justified by faith. Rome would agree with that. We're justified by faith alone. In Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, the solas of the Reformation. Righteousness is gifted to us. It's not infused into us. It's imputed to our record. Not When we're talking about our justification, that, that, that never has anything to do with us other than we've come to the right place. Right? There's no work for us to do to be justified. We saw in chapter 4, God justifies the ungodly. Not those who've cleaned up their act. He justifies the ungodly through faith in Jesus. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Do you believe? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? You didn't understand all of this happened when you came to faith in Christ, but I hopefully somebody explained it to you. That coming to faith in Christ, you were pardoned for all of your sins, but that's only half of it. You were accepted as righteous in God's sight, only for the righteousness of Christ, imputed to you and received by faith alone. When you receive Christ, you receive the total package, forgiveness and righteousness. And you're made a child of God. So how do we apply this right quick as we close up? Just a, a couple of statements, right? first one goes back to what I said about Paul's persistent prayer. Like Paul, let God's sovereignty fuel your prayers for the lost. Don't worry about whether or not you can figure out whether or not they're elect. God takes care. That's God's business. Don't be afraid to pray for lost people to come to Christ. That's the kind of prayers we see in Scripture, right? 
They don't have a lot of qualifiers on them. Let God's sovereignty fuel your prayers for the lost. Paul said to the Colossians, he made it his goal to present every man perfect in Christ. He wasn't trying to figure out who was elect. He was just ministering the Word. Giving the general call. Praying for God to do a work. Let God's sovereignty fuel your prayers for the lost and your witness to the lost. Because Paul didn't just pray for them. You can see he wrote the book. He prayed and he went. He prayed and he witnessed. He had a burden and he, he acted on that burden. So again, ask yourself, do I have a burden for the lost? Do I have a passion for the lost? Am I praying for the lost? Am I seeking, even if I'm an introvert, am I seeking to speak to people about Jesus? Am I willing to give a tract? Am I willing to share something on social media? Am I willing to talk in person with a person about Jesus? Let Paul set that example for us. It's in God's Word. Number two, beware of all forms of legalism or ignorant zeal. Beware of all forms of giving you ways that you can make yourself acceptable to God. That He'll love you more if you don't do this list and you do this list. That's legalism. That's ignorant zeal. The church is full of people filled with ignorant zeal. Making the least thing the main thing and losing the gospel in the process. heard a story about a woman who was in a legalistic church who believed women couldn't wear pants and shouldn't wear makeup or jewelry and all of this kind of stuff. And somehow in that context, through the gospel got out. It was caged up, but it must have got out. And she came down and talked to the preacher and says, I want to come to faith in Christ. I want to be saved. And the preacher looked at her and said, not in those earbobs, sister. That's ignorant zeal. That's foolishness. Quit focusing on the outside of the cup. But there's all forms of legalism in either polluting the law after we come to Christ or before seeking the law to be or what we do to be the ladder by which we climb to, to heaven in Christ. Beware of ignorant zeal. There's a lot of ignorant zeal in, I'm going to put it in quotes, the church. A lot of people fighting over stuff that's just fueled by ignorant zeal. Right? And there's certainly a ton of ignorant zeal outside the church. I mean, I'm going to say this. I don't want cost down the line. Islam is a form of ignorant zeal. But very few are more passionate than a lot of those followers. And I know some of them are, are radicalized and some are not. And I, I get the distinction. But there's, you know, think about the guys that flew those planes into the Twin Towers. They thought they were serving God and they were going to be found themselves in paradise after that plane hit that building with all these virgins around them. They didn't know how hot it was in paradise. That's sad though, right? Deceived enough to do that in order to be right with God. All the time just misinformed. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God, so they sought to pursue it their own way. But you name any other something in my hands I bring. It's ignorant zeal. Number three, accept God's righteousness as a free gift in Christ alone. If you will be justified, it will be through faith alone. If you will be right with God, it will be because you receive Christ, the free gift of Christ, as your Savior. And receiving Him, you receive both forgiveness and righteousness. Right standing with God. 
Accept God's righteousness as a free gift in Christ alone. That's how you will come if you will be justified. Remember this. Every time we see, sing Rock of Ages, right? Here's, here's, here's verse 3 of Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I would just add, wash me and clothe me, or I die. Ignorance, most definitely, is not bliss. Especially when it is ignorance over eternal matters. Ignorance over the righteousness of God. And the most important knowledge you can have is a true knowledge of the righteousness of God, which is His gift to us in His Son. Trust Christ alone and be clothed in His righteousness and made right with God. Trust and rest in Him. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Send forth your word. Convert the lost. Sanctify the saved. Purify our gospel. May we be preaching the truth of the gospel. That Christ died for us. That Christ lived for us. That justification is through faith in Christ alone. Through trusting you, Lord Jesus. We are both cleansed and clothed. And we can offer that to the lost all around us for whom we have a burden and for whom we pray for and we seek to reach with the gospel. We can call on them to turn and trust, to repent of all of their good works and efforts to be made right, to repent of all of their sin and running from God, to turn and trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and His provision of righteousness. So for everyone under the sound of my voice who doesn't know Christ, I would pray for them that they might repent and trust Christ. You work in their hearts according to your will, Lord. And for those of us who know Christ, get us off the treadmill. Help us to rest in the righteousness that is ours. Help us to understand the difference between justification and sanctification so that our hope is always rested in Christ and that we then love you because you first loved us and grow in your grace. It's all your grace, Lord. We are recipients of grace. We don't deserve it. We were dead in in sin and running from it. And yet, you, but God, who is rich in love toward us, made us alive together with Christ. Save and sanctify your people and put your gospel on our lips because it's flowing from a burden in prayer. 